We uh, hey Dave, by the way. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. I've got a whiskey in my hand now. Finally enough, I've just picked it up, so I'm not a liar. Yeah. Uh, we're at a distillery. What's the whiskey we're drinking? We've got Sam Slaney and JC Endel to uh, join us. What whiskey have we got in our hands, guys? Um, this is Jace, by the yes, way. Yes, I am Jace. Hello, internets. Uh, this is our first distillery last release. So how do I put that any simpler? This is the the last release we made at our previous distillery out in Essendon Fields. And it is a combination of first and second fill Apera casts. And interestingly for us, this is one of our first cast strength whiskeys that we've, well, we've put out. Okay. Um, so it's a big, big, big badass whiskey. What, what strength? 62.3%. Okay. So yep. this podcast could go downhill rapidly. Oh, there's a good chance it will. Starwood was in Essendon Fields and it's moved to, where are we now? Port Melbourne? South Melbourne? Port Melbourne. Port Melbourne. And that's Sam. This, this is Sam's, Sam's voice. voice. Yep. Yes. G'day. Yeah, Port Melbourne. So we moved, what, September, October last year. We needed more space and we were kind of a bit out of the way in Essendon Fields. It was a good location um, because it was close to the freeway and easy to get to for some people, but for half of Melbourne, it was like the middle of nowhere, so pretty pretty hard spot. So this location came up and when we saw it, we came in and it was just felt right. You know, you really walked in and felt the space. So it was a big move. Like we've got to move all the barrels, all the equipment. Didn't upgrade at the same time. It was a pretty stressful time, but uh, it's good to be in and have it all working. I think we kind of. What sort of stress was it when you moved everything back? Uh, many, <laughs> many stresses. Um, well, we did. We did. I mean, it was a tight budget, you know, and it was it was sort of multiple projects coming together at once. So both an upgrade project as well as a move. Um, you know, upgrading the distillery bar. So kind of everything snowballed into one thing. So because Essendon did have a bar, but it was kind of a. Uh, sort of a makeshift kind of thing, was it? Yeah, very organic. You know, it sort of like started, like we started with the tiki bar, which and we had like a barrel palm tree and the, the throne and all that crap. So, yeah, it was really organic. And then we put a little bit of money into it, but it was still like in a warehouse in a cold space. So it was nice to move here. Uh, Sam, what's your role here? Uh, I'm distillery manager. So I think at the end of the day it means, I don't know, the place doesn't burn down. I think that's the end. <laughs> End goal of my role. What's uh, Jace? What's your role? Is your role to try and burn it down? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> no, I mean my title is head of brewing. Um, I guess my responsibilities fall or start at malt coming in to uh, Port Melbourne, or our production site, and then whiskey leaving. Yeah. So a lot of people probably don't realise that making whiskey essentially starts off as beer. Uh, can you sort of tell us the differences between when you're about to brew a beer? Because I guess both your backgrounds are, are brewing beer before you were distillers. Can you talk us through what the differences are? Yeah. Well, Sam's probably more versed in the brewing world than I am. Um, I've tasted your homebrew, Jason. They were, they were all really good. So Good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it there. Um, yeah. You you do the same thing that you do when you're brewing beer. So you, we, we mash in um, or we, we perform a mash. Um, just a, you know, malted barley is what we use. Um, that's that's what makes single malt whiskey is is a single malt and it's typically malted barley. Um, we then mash in and then I guess after mashing is when the point of difference starts. We don't boil our wort. Um, we, just, we just pump straight across into our fermentation vessels and then we pitch our yeast and then we start 
fermentation pretty much from there. So it's pretty, pretty lactic. There's a lot of, um, I guess, lacto kicking around, a lot of, a lot of acetic acid, not acetic acid, lactic acid. Um, and then we distill it. So that lactic acid is a big part of our production. So Starwood started in 2010? Uh, production started in 2010. So in terms of the, the life of a whiskey, uh, you know, you see 18-year-old whiskey is kind of a common thing. What you guys are producing is, is obviously a, a very young product still. Uh, what are the sort of differences and, and I guess how does that look long-term for you guys? Uh, you know, is an older product always going to be better or is a younger product better for the Australian climate or, or how does that look? Mm, you've done your research on whiskey questions. This is good. <laughs> it's very much like whiskey, like scotch, is about age and people talk about age as their first point of reference and it's an indicator of quality traditionally, right? So um, it, when you come into the market as someone that's making whiskey in – you know, uh, three years around that mark, people, first question I ask is, how old is it? And you say, oh, it's three years old. And they go, oh, it's shit. You're like, well, if you, if you tried it, like, don't think about the age, try the whiskey and we'll, we'll make a call then. I think the age statement on whiskey is, and this is my opinion, is it's derived from, a, I guess, a marketing point of view. The older the whiskey is, the better, the better it is, typically. But I think that was more or less a problem of nowhere to sell old whiskey. Um, so it just, it just got to the point where an older whiskey was considered more desirable and rightfully so it takes, you know, a long time to make whiskey that's 18 years old. It takes 18 years, but doesn't necessarily make it better in, in my opinion. What's the theory behind the, uh, age making a better character of whiskey? Uh, I guess it's more contact time inside the barrel. Um, the spirit that is contact time with the barrel. Um, but but it just becomes more oaky. You see that translating to beer as well when people say, you know, oh, I've aged this imperial stout for six years or I've, it's been six years in the barrel for this beer and it's like, great, it's going to be more oxidised. It doesn't sound just, It just becomes an oxidised mess. I mean, if you look at Ronenbach who used a blend of, you know, their old stuff and their new stuff when they're – I've never worked at Ronenbach. I only know based off what their marketing's told me as well. So <laughs> you I seem cynical about again. marketing, Jace. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. It's a, an important part of the business. But, um, yeah, I think old, old stuff doesn't necessarily equal better stuff, and that's throughout the world. A new world whiskey is really like changing that model of um, of how long it takes to make whiskey. Like Scots kind of make their whiskey to take a long time to mature, it's very cold there. Like, you know, it doesn't get above, you know, the warehouses, even in the lowlands, like, you know, 20 degrees is a high temperature. Um, and they make their spirit very traditionally. So they're really about different spirit types and, and suiting that to a period of maturation. You know, they've seen a demand for whiskey come up and all of a sudden they're trying to make whiskey quicker. So this is why like Johnny Double Black and things like that have popped up because it's, it's them basically taking away age statements from some of their products. So core products have lost age statements um, over time because they just couldn't supply it. And they've sort of built a brand around um, something, but then they've obviously stuffed themselves because you can't, you don't have a whiskey time machine. Like you can't just pull it out of the air. Um, whiskey not, time machine to play at the corner hotel. Yeah. The next Saturday <laughs> if you want to go. Yeah. We, we talk about that a lot here. We're pretty keen on it. Um, but New World Whiskey is like this different, new approach of making whiskey and it's also a company name but it really is you know around the world and it's um something that james swan like james swan kind of was doing a lot of with um 
Cavalan and a few distilleries around the world is clean spirit going into barrel, like really start with a clean spirit going in, um, active wood and, you know, reduce the amount of work that spirit has to do in the barrel and it really um, it comes together much quicker if you're in the right environment. So it's really about changing the parameters you're working with and you can kind of make make time in the barrel much less of a factor, yeah. You mentioned uh, they're making they're making the beer. Oh, sorry, making the the spirit to go into the barrels slightly different. So, are you guys? I guess the the first step, the the brewing step, or, or whatever that's called in in your terminology. Uh, what is that called in your terminology? Yeah, brewing. Yep. Yep. Uh, so, is that different then between say Australia and a Scottish a Scottish distillery? Yeah, not so much. Um, where the differences really come in, well, one Pete Pete's one thing, so that makes a big difference to kind of sorry, who's Pete? No, so <laughs> God damn it. I hate myself. <laughs> very good. It's very not very good. good. Nah, it's good. It's good. <laughs> um, but also the way they run their stills. So like um, we've got relatively tall necks and a lot of copper and a lot of reflux. So we get a really clean spirit and we run tight cuts. So it means that you get really clean spirit with a good ester profile, but not too much faints, not too much heaviness, not too much oiliness. Um what that means is you don't need as much time in barrel to kind of deal with those odd flavors that when it's in immature spirit tastes really awkward, but when it's had a really long time in barrel can taste great. Um, sometimes in Scotland, some of those guys look for those characters because they, they put it in barrel for a long time and it, and it works. So um, between environment and kind of how you run the stills and how you make your spirit really defines that, I guess. You know, you mentioned the uh, the move from Essendon to uh, here in Port Melbourne. That was facilitated by by some investment, and it's something that we mentioned off mic briefly. And I've heard whispers about uh, you know within the industry, and it's I, I, it always felt like a secret, as some investment does feel like a secret. But you you know, you guys are happy to talk about it. Um, so some Diageo investment. That's kind of what's facilitated the move. Yeah, definitely. I mean, running a whiskey distillery is pretty hard business. Um, There's a long long lead time between making, you know, buying the barley and actually selling the liquid. So cash flow is a killer in this industry. Um, and anyone looking to start a whiskey distillery needs to think about it pretty hard before they commit because it's really, it's a, it's a hard road. Um, so, you know, cash flow is a killer. And so you really need to make sure that you've got enough funding or a model that's going to work for you and see you through that period. Um, we uh, got onto a Distill Ventures program. So Distill Ventures is, a, uh, I guess, an investment company that works with Diageo and they sort of basically identify talent and then sort of work um, with Diageo to basically develop investment programs. So they've got a range of different ones and we basically worked with them and then came up with an investment agreement with Diageo. So they're one of our shareholders now. So... Um, you know, it's it's good because they, you know, they're one of our investors and they help keep the lights on, um, so we can keep barley coming in the door, keep paying wages while we're waiting for inventory to mature, and then at the same time, it's it's like having a bigger brother. You know, in in Australia where the whiskey industry isn't very developed and there's not many people to call on, it's nice to have that technical support across the whole business to be able to kind of reach out occasionally and just ask the question that, you know, if you're in beer, you can ask guys, there's guys everywhere in Australia, but in Australia and spirits, you know, we look around for people to ask sometimes and there's no one there. So that's a really nice factor as well. So yeah, it's been, it's been really good for us and it's kind of enabled this move and enabled this upgrade and kind of able to keep us, keep growing, which is pretty exciting. Hmm. 
When was that venture entered into, sorry? With 2015. 2015. So how did you keep cash flow going in your first three years of operation? Five years. Oh, well, sorry, I meant until you had mature product to sell. It's a barrel investment program, which is a, a tough road. And I don't know if any of you guys were aware of Nant Distillery, but that was um, when barrel investment programs go bad. That's a pretty hard game to play, that one. Um, and that's basically people buy a barrel or invest in a barrel. Um, uh, and then, you know, with Nant, they were guaranteeing some sort of like 23% on the investment. Nant got themselves into trouble with that and it's you know public domain knowledge that one so it is a as you said it's a difficult one right yeah look we were really i mean part of that basically that investment that initial investment in 2015 was basically getting out of that program um and basically being able to buy back all the stock so you know for the actual new world whiskey distillery to own all the stock and not have any liability to to um to shareholders because it um yeah it was really a liability and look that was you know that startup period was pretty tough um like there's a lot of uh, a lot of challenges in that in that time before we, we got proper investment in cash flow. How long have you both been with Starwood? I joined the company in 2012. Yeah. yeah, 2012. So I'm getting close to five years now. Sam has a, a bit of a different mm. timeline, but he was here earlier than I was. Yeah, so I started in 2009, um, so I was the first employee, so I met Dave Vitale. Uh, I was working at Grain and Grape and I wanted a job in beer and I met Dave Vitale and he talked about whiskey and I was like, yeah, I don't know, what do you, what do you want to have your whiskey for, mate? And uh, anyway, he, he, yeah, he's a charming man, so he charmed me into a job and then, uh, and then worked there until I think it was early 2013. So I basically saw it through, you know, we commissioned the plant which was pretty interesting, and then uh, started making the spirit, uh, the whiskey, a lot of development, and then launched the product to start of twenty thirteen. Well, uh, that's 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 the marking point for me when I started because that's when I ju- jumped on board. Was when I remember going to the official, I guess, launch party. Mm, it's good. It's yeah. good party. Yeah, it was a good party. Um, you say that with like a grin. What was good about that party? Just a boozy party? Yeah, well, the good thing about, I don't know, they're just boozy parties. It's, it's probably good to, for Sam's point of view to make this product, put it into barrel and then wait three years or two and a half years and then release it to the market. Mm. It's a relief, right? Because at the start, you don't really know. You're like, you put all your chips in one basket essentially and you're like, this better taste good at the end. And people better buy it because, you know, whiskey people want to buy Scottish whiskey and, and people that like whiskey aren't necessarily looking for the new Australian product. You know, they're kind of ingrained into their products in a lot of time, right? Yeah, that's a pretty it's a pretty loaded question, but you're right. Is um, it loaded? What's loaded about oh, it's that? It's not really loaded, but <laughs> I, I think the whiskey market is pretty dynamic, isn't it? It's changing, mm. isn't it? It used to be, I guess, what we called, you know, the tweed-wearing gang. Mm. Um, now it's, you know, more younger people. And we, I, I always say we ride off the back of the craft beer wave movement. So, mm. you know, people who are looking for flavor or something interesting, um, you know, they might be interested in beer or they might be interested in wine. And then I guess we kind of sit in between both those categories mm. and hopefully people who are interested in either of those products can find whiskey interesting as well. 
and that's something that we've you know we say on the show a lot we like everything you know we want we don't just want to drink beer we want to drink whiskey we want to drink a, a cocktail uh so you know it is a natural fit to have it there and you know i we kind of know both you guys i think dave interviewed sam on what was that show uh we did a show for it's every two years so what year was it sam 2014 perhaps the australian national homebrewers conference pre-dinner which was a pro brewer homebrewer degustation yeah uh at william anglers and we had a little bit of a chat i don't remember about what but i'm sure it was fascinating yeah, I think I brewed an IPA, like a uh, Australian IP, hop. Australian hop IPA, mm. I think it was. And mm. it was matched with dessert, I think. Yeah. Yeah, and it was, I think it was my pick of the matchings anyway. It did okay, yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. I think it was Brendan Sullivan's brainchild to have IPA paired with dessert, if I'm not mistaken, and I could be. Yeah, I can't remember the menu input, but I'm, it sounds like something he would. Yeah, he was. A, I think he was uh, taking the idea. Yeah, mm. uh, and Jace, you know, I, I know you through beer as well. So I guess I guess neither of you really wanted a career in whiskey, and now you're, you're that's your job. Mm. How is that? You know, now are you super into whiskey and and don't want to go back to brewing? Is that how that looks? Uh, yeah. Uh, pretty pretty simply um the good thing about uh, what i always say is like yeah i I consider myself a brewer but the best part about working at a whiskey distillery is i get to make whiskey and then i can go home and still make beer Mm. and it doesn't feel like it's you know what i do day in day out so you still homebrew then oh yeah yep uh up until recently when i got married and moved house i was probably brewing once every fortnight at home making making beer to drink it's still, um, yeah, it's probably still like my favorite drink to drink is is, is beer. But, um, I mean, I've been making whiskey now for five years, so it's mm. pretty. I'm pretty fond of that as well. Mm. Yep. Um, Starwood's kind of ingrained within the beer industry here, you know, with both your guys' backgrounds. And Starwood barrels are mentioned frequently on this show. I think um, Sam emailed me after we mention them in the show one time and that's kind of what got us talking about doing a podcast uh, how's that relationship relationship look for you guys you get i think beer brewed at uh boat rocker is that still happening uh oh is that a, a sore point with their new no, no 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 <laughs> it's not a sore point at all um uh, i still or we still work with um boat rocker and and matt all the time um so I guess I, I explain what the explain even what the barrel project how that started is I guess when I came on to New World or it was called Vic, Victoria Valley Distillery back then you know we had we had a heap of barrels that I really wanted to get out to brewers so they can make cool beer with purely because I know I like beer that was aged in whiskey barrels it was also a really good marketing exercise for. To, to get that kind of Starwood whiskey barrels, yeah, and because what, the, craft, what's the craft brewing, or the, I guess the craft craft beer drinkers is exactly our target audience. So, you know, why not give it to to brewers and uh, and allow them to make, you know, ideally interesting beers? And Boat Rocker was probably probably the best example of what you know you can do with whiskey barrels. And Matt really jumped at the idea, and he took a he took a lot of barrels, took a lot of volume straight up. You know, and we've worked with people like Three Ravens who, you know, Brendan obviously does a great job with whiskey barrels. I don't know, shit, we've worked with heaps of people. Tallboy and Moose recently. Tallboy and Moose with which the was, coffee yeah. stuff, which was um, an interesting project. That was really cool. That was something I'd been trying to get off the ground for ages. It was, you know, coffee and whiskey and beer. 
it was harder than I anticipated. I don't know why. As in getting off the ground or? As in just getting, um, I guess, coffee producers interested in aging coffee beans in whiskey barrels. But the whiskey does become pretty overpowering pretty quickly in, in terms of coffee. Beer, not so much. Was that your idea, Jace? Uh, yeah, I'd like to claim it was, totally. It depends who you talk to. Usually the coffee roasters who I talk to will claim it's their idea, but I'll leave that there. Because <laughs> I came along to that event um, and that was an odd experience drinking mm. that um, cold brew, barrel-aged cold brew. So that 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 process kind of comes – we were doing it at the distillery. Everyone here loves drinking coffee. I think that comes from Sam and even Brendan back in the early days. Like they were pretty avid home roasters. And we have a lot of whiskey at the distillery, so thought so it would be a pretty cool idea to soak some green coffee beans in whiskey and then roast them, which is also a bad idea because it's highly flammable. <laughs> um, but we did manage to roast some whiskey-soaked coffee beans and, yeah, it doesn't work with milk-based, I guess, coffee, but it's pretty awesome in, um, I guess, short black or well, short blacks or espressos and espressos or um, long blacks. It just tastes like whiskey and coffee. So we took that idea out to Tourboy and Moose um, and they had um, over the road from them a roastery called Red Bean Cafe as well and they, they jumped at the idea as well and, yeah, that's how that that project kind of got the ball rolling. And now uh, it's quite odd because, like, it tastes like a – it was a cold brew at that event, wasn't it? With yeah, the- it was – yeah, we had it on tap. Yeah, yeah, it was, right. um, it was cold brew. It was cold extraction method anyway. Um, the coffee beans had been aged in a whiskey barrel, a small, small scale whiskey barrel, fifty liter whiskey barrel, and then yeah, they roasted them. So a, a different method than what we initially employed, but a but it certainly one. like uh, it absorbed a lot of the flavor of the from the yeah. barrel, and it was an odd experience drinking a cold brew with that very distinct yeah ca- i believe the barrel was half full so probably like one bag of yeah um, right coffee beans which i'm assuming a 20 kilo coffee bag is close to 50 liters in in volume um but yeah they they yeah they aged it in a barrel for i want to say three months or so yeah i think i heard a lot of people a lot of confused people drinking their uh cold brew and saying is this boozy is this alcoholic because it was a odd experience it was good i think after the roasting process it's not very alcoholic yeah i think the taste of whiskey is pretty bold uh what about the the ginger beer or is it ginger beer or ginger ale uh what's the difference we call it ginger beer so the uh, the ginger beer whiskey is a project that started from actually it's it started its foundations are from one day when we're back at Essendon on one of our quiet days, we're going to brew beer. Um, and being the brewer that I am, I forgot to bring hops and yeast. So we weren't <laughs> going to make beer. Um, but we had a, a really good um, supermarket across the road and they had a, a, a lot of ginger. So we decided to make ginger beer. What's that supermarket? So, I mean, uh, what's that called? It's called Lamana. Yeah, I think yeah. my uh, everyone that goes here, it's like a cult. Yeah. I love it. It's yeah, a great, it's a great it's supermarket. Great. Yeah. It's like that is the the worst thing about this move. I think everyone here will universally say like Lamana. We miss Lamana. Like, they just had really good fresh produce, and I I don't want to sound like a a brand ambassador for them, but that, that no, shop's ev- fucking dope. Everyone that I talked to, like, because Emma worked out there for a while on a freelance job, and she's just like, oh man, Lamana. 
It's amazing. It's like a wonderland. Yeah. And then we met some friends that had been working out there and like, yeah, you got to go. Yeah. Just go for a day trip. Yeah. I still try to shop there now. Right. Um, but Preston Market calls me. It's easier. Anyway, um, yeah, we went across there and we just brought a shitload of ginger and grounded it all up. And then we had 50, 60 odd litres of ginger beer and we didn't have a fermentation vessel. It was a pretty well planned out brew day. Um, so no hops, no yeast. No fermentation vessel. Yep. So we just stuck it in a 50-litre barrel. Um, anyway, it sat there for a while. Fermentation kicked off, went off with a bang. It was mostly a like a sugar base recipe. And then we had a, you know, a barrel full of ginger beer and then I think I kegged it off or something. It was, it was a pretty tall ass to get through that much ginger beer at home, but we did it. It was very boozy. It was like 8%. We had to cut it back with ginger cordial at home because it was it really gave you a wobbly boot. Anyway, we had this empty empty cask that reeked of ginger beer and we were kind of like, what what what, what are we going to do with this? And then we, uh, it was, I guess, one of the old production distillers here, Hugh. Uh, we kind of looked at each other and goes, well, well, we'll put whiskey in it, right? So, yeah, we, we, we put whiskey back into this barrel and then it was, I think, Whiskey Live or the Oak Barrel Show up in Sydney. After we'd kind of aged the whiskey in the whiskey barrel, they were kind of, they asked us for like a special release and we took some ginger beer cask up to them. My, my memory of this is pretty hazy and they loved it. They absolutely, you know, and everyone at the show really enjoyed it as well. So they, they ended up buying half the barrel or most of the barrel straight away. And then we had this problem where the demand for the ginger beer ale cast whiskey out demanded the production <laughs> capacity of what we could do. So um, it's been an ongoing project of trying to find ginger beer producers faster than we can make ginger beer and whiskey yeah, combined. Joe did the first three, brewed the first three ginger beers and then... Oh, I've did them. Done them all, I guess. Oh, yeah, and then yeah. works brewed down at Boat Rocker, so I kind yeah. of went down there, worked with Matt. I mean, like Jace said, Matt's been great. <clears throat> and Jace essentially was looking for someone to to essentially put up and make a ginger beer because we don't really want the ginger beer, we just want the seasoning effect. And so to try and find someone that's keen to make, you know, a sour ginger beer is pretty hard, but I think Jace had a good pitch and Matt was pretty accommodating, so it was a pretty good outcome. So now I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and say this. I remember <clears throat> this is your idea. Matt, Matt, Matt probably hasn't heard this side of the story, but um, I thought it was pretty funny. We're sitting in in Boat Rocker's barrel room, and Matt kind of said to me, "What's the point of aging aging ginger beer in a barrel?" And I just kind of remember going, "Well, well, Matt, like you've got a barrel aging room. <laughs> Surely I don't have to explain this to you." <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We got it over the line. <laughs> so now Boat Rocker are getting their own distillery. Are they still going to be making your ginger beer? Good question. That I can okay. answer. Okay. Yep. Probably not from a <clears throat> probably not from a conflict of interest like in that. Like we're we're pretty happy and that you know they gave us a call straight away and said this is going to happen and they're like but we don't want it to affect our relationship because it's been such a good synergistic relationship. Like we've done really well with it um, and I think. The whole approach of uh, what are they called? What's the distillery oh, called? Uh, Hippocampus. Hippocampus. Yeah, Lobotomy. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. <laughs> that's a the great wh- idea. The whiskey's not that strong. <laughs> very different approach. Very cool approach. Like doing um, more white spirits from a grain base, and it really fits with what they're doing, and it kind of is a complementary almost. So I think it's more about whether they can successfully 
market. Generally. Yeah, it's not it's not something I'm really worried about. I think um, you know we have a really good relationship with Boat Rocker. I don't see yeah any issues coming up there. I think it'll be fine. I think what Matt's trying to do, or what Boat Rocker is trying to do, and what we're trying to do are, are two different avenue paths. And it, you know the ginger beer is still really young. So do you think it almost it's like beer where it complements, uh, or, or you were seeing it with gin at the moment. Everyone's excited about gin and they're excited about all gins. It's not like, you know, one is going to shut one out of the market. Everyone's just kind of in it together. Totally. I think it's even more like craft beer was maybe, or it still kind of is, I guess. Mm. You know, we've only got a tiny amount of the market. So it's it would be inhibiting to have competition between each other. Yeah. Mm. I think it's great that they've got a steal. Mm. It's awesome. It's really um, it's exciting to see it grow and get more people come in and, and guys making better whiskey, better spirits. Um, we've got Melbourne Moonshine down the road, so they're in South Melbourne. Um, they're um, doing really cool stuff. And I, it's, I had their black tea uh, or their iced tea moonshine or whatever yeah. it was. It's yeah. really nice. Yeah, no, they're doing well, and um, their apple apple pie thing's great as well. And they've really um, yeah, they're doing a great job. Um, really cool little venue. And it's nice yeah, that we can hopefully build a little bit of a precinct with Colonial and those guys and um, West End. Yeah, the West End Ales. Yeah, yeah. Was it West? No, not West, West End. West City. West City. Yeah. yeah. West End's the, the other guys yeah. who are further west. Yeah. Adelaide. Um, based. There's <laughs> <laughs> too many similar names. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's exciting. <laughs> it's exciting to get those guys out here and kind of um, grow grow together yeah it's good i was blown away the other day when i seen on um, crafty's website he had an article up about how many distilleries or breweries that are jumping on the distilling bandwagon mm. wow and there's a few more i know like a like big shed are distilling some of their beers at the moment as well yeah like everyone you know it's a you've got all this beer which is essentially the start of whiskey so why not see what the end result is right if you're going to throw hops in the mix it's a crazy product why it's just it's different yep it's good though like it depends on how or what you do with it but the distilling hops and and malt together mm. are, yeah it's a pretty wild product yep what what does wild mean um well hops hops kind of i guess the the aroma or the flavor that they they have in beer is different once it goes through or once it passes through distillation mm. it's a different different flavor profile yeah so we had distilled hops from brendan yeah that's a totally different method yeah okay yeah which he kept really secret of how yeah he yeah he's pretty secret about it i'm uh, not going to give his secrets away okay yeah that was incredible yeah weird yeah it's weird. um it's that really cool like yeah i did a little bit of um mucking around with distilled hops as well and it's um you can get really get that like bright hoppy oily fresh you know bubblegum encapsulation um but at the uh, the same thing you can get just pure ass like the garlic onion like really dank gross things and they just are really awkward and um so you've got to get it right the method the method's pretty important yeah distilling hops is there's a dark art to that it's pretty okay. good though can you tell us about the arts i'm gonna pry, try and pry secrets out oh it's not really my secret to tell it's like i i didn't I didn't come up with the process. It's just, it's either you get like this latexy vegetal minty or you kind of get the lovely fruit aromas and, you know, without the bitterness. Cause like it's okay to get, you know, tasty, you know, let's say galaxy, you get passion fruit, but you don't want the bitterness that comes with it. Mm. Yep. 
it's really about being careful with the f- fractionating the, 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 the components and you really want that oil, that fruity, oily um, component that's really the fruity character in hops and everything else is pretty, can be pretty pungent. So as soon as you put it in a still, you kind of lose to an extent that ability to fractionate really well. Whereas if you do it like out of, out of the normal still in a um, steam, steam distillation or something, you've got a bit more control over the process. Um, it's like having a really, really bitter IPA and little to no hop aroma or flavor so like character. IPAs five years ago kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, IPAs five years ago. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, so we also tasted the wash that was kind of a beer. You, you poured us a sample before. And I think, Sam, we discussed would you ever keg that and, and you know, do a kind of a product out of that and you kind of see your wood. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we're really keen to we kick around the idea a lot. It's just us getting off our ass and actually putting in a draft system and, and doing it. But um, the idea of like a weekend offering of wash that's from that week, it's got a very short lifespan because it's, you know, um, it's never been sterilized. So it's it turns pretty murky pretty quickly, but in when it's in its sweet spot, it's great. And so, you know, the idea is to basically throw some hops in a corny, um, rack off 20 litres of wash-in, carbonate it, chill it, and then serve it at that weekend at the bar. Can you take us through, like, what sort of flavour profile you get out of it? Yeah, so really um, it's high alcohol, so 7.5%. Um, it's all pale malt, so um, it's, you know, pretty clean malt profile. It's bone dry, like we ferment out to below one specific gravity or, you know, yeah, Dry, dry as acidic because of the lacto and, and all the bugs in there. Dry, acidic, estery, lots of ester because of basically the hot, like we ferment hot, you know, pitch at 20 and then it peaks at 32, 33, um, three-day ferment. So heaps of ester profile. Um, so you've got this Belgian-esque, really fruity, strong, dry, acidic, tart, put some gas on there and serve it at the right temperature and a little bit of hop character in the right place. And it's, it's interesting. Mm, it's like yeah. a Berliner Weiss on crack and steroids. Mm. <laughs> and it's the kind of crack thing steroids, like people yeah. like, you know, us and I know there's a lot of people that listen to the podcast would be like, even if it's not amazing, they're still really curious to try what that's going to taste like. I think when it's good, I mean, the thing about it is it's, it's just about the sweet spot. It's kind of like accelerated car scale in the uk where like that you got that window of a cask being on i think with this it's like when it's good it's good it's just that window is small <laughs> you know it's like yeah yeah a weekend hmm. even that might be a bit long yeah yeah right we, we could be fermenting in your glass though mm. that's a what a marketing point live culture live probiotic culture. you're mm. cooked as in it'll just be physically fermenting or nah. not that not oh, that exciting um <laughs> Nah, if we do our job right, it won't be physically fermenting, but it could be. It's not going to be. It's not going to be. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting product. You're saying it's not going to be, and you're twisting your head like, oh, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I could feel this turning in my guts. <laughs> um, nah, it should be. Yeah, I think what Sam said is right. Is when it's on, it's on. Yeah. And when it's off, it's off. Yeah. Right. So what we tasted was from Monday. It's now a Thursday. So. It's Would pretty be, fresh. Yeah. Yep. I think that's the sweet spot. Yeah, nice. Yeah. We try to turn our ferments around in three days. Yeah. So, yep. If, yeah, if it, yeah, if it doesn't get turned around quick enough, it'll go sulfury. Uh, we kind of talked about 
you guys are doing your your wash here, so you're brewing here. But a lot of distilleries are buying it in. Um, how important is it for you to get that consistent uh, product going in, and, and how much attention do you pay to that? We pay a lot of attention to, I guess you know every part of our upstream process or every part of our process right through to putting whiskey in a glass. It's it's definitely important for us to get our our brewing consistent because that leads on to our distillation being consistent as well. And we're trying to make a product that is very consistent. So hopefully you can pick up a bottle of Starwood, you know, that was packaged a year ago, two years ago, and it's the same as it is today. I'm pretty confident to stand by that and it should be. So, yeah, brewing's brewing's a huge part of that. It's the start of that consistency process. Hmm. Yeah. I might take a quick break and then we'll come back and uh, I want to talk about barrels. So we talked a little bit, but a little bit about barrels before. Where do your barrels come from? Well, they come from a variety of sources. Um, we really um, started out with a pretty a strong model built around para barrels that have been recouped. So a para is Australian sherry, but they can't call it sherry because of appellation. So a para, it's a silly name, but that's what it is. Um, a lot of stuff out of McWilliams. So the really shit sherry. Well. You get flagons pretty cheap. It's it's not some of it's not great, but uh, shit's good. You you like McWilliams, Jace? Jeez, I'm putting myself in a hole here. Yeah, yeah. They they make some cheap products, okay. um, but <laughs> look, the wood, the wood. I don't think they listen. So I yeah. think cool. <laughs> <laughs> I've burnt that bridge anyway. So because <laughs> um, no one's drinking sherry. Is um, the wood that they that they would deplete was amazing. I mean, the the consumption of sherry in Australia has really fallen away, and so these guys were getting rid of heaps of wood. And this wood would be, you know, 50-year-old barrels that have been in the fortified industry in Australia. So I might talk down the liquid, but at the same time, it's a lot of heritage and some really, um, some wood that's seen a lot of fortified stuff. But they were pretty much dead. Like, they would get rid of them because, well, one, they didn't need them, but two, they were pretty much falling apart. And then send them to SA Cooperage, who um, do a lot of work recoupering barrels. So they basically cut them down, get rid of all the dead staves, um, put them back together in various sizes. So we kind of started out with 50 litre, 100 litre, 200 litre barrels. So like a, a quarter cask, an octave and a barrique size um, and then fire them. So basically give them a char similar to a bourbon, American oak bourbon cask. So a lot of pyrolysis um, of the wood and of that fortified wine. So you got a really rich developed. Sorry, what was that word? Pyrolysis. Yeah, what does that mean? Fire. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so really... I, I'd never heard that word before. Really? Jeez, Jace. He just dropped it in like it was a word that you guys kick around all the nah, time. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> yeah, call bullshit when you say it. Uh, fire, fire barrels. Py- pyrolysis. Good. Uh, I like it. It's uh, going to come up in your review. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is like a burnt barrel on the table here we're looking at that no one can see. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it really kind of brings out the sweetness of the wood with that fire. Like it really develops all those um, those oak sugars and, and makes it really sweet. So that would give like a really um, – a lot of oak extraction because the fire really opens up the wood and a lot of kind of dark fruit character from the apera and across that portfolio of sizes you'd get kind of different extraction rates. So that was really good for the early whiskey to kind of blend in and have a palette to play with. So like it wasn't just one thing. It was kind of three things to work together. 
the problem with the para wood or um, Australian cherry wood is the industry is disappearing and the whiskey industry is coming up. So the demand for that wood's through the roof um, and that supply is really drying up. So pretty early on, we started looking at alternatives and making an Australian whiskey. Um, looking at the wine industry was pretty obvious. So we originally got in some octaves from Yolumba and these actually came from a lead off Aussie home brewer. Uh, right. And you guys are both obviously passionate homebrewers, so it comes, it pays off. Yeah, yeah, it was a good, it was a good little uh, tip there, tidbit. It was when the site was really starting to fall apart, but um, that was that was worth it. But that was great. These barrels were, I didn't realize how good they were at the time, but they were like magic, like hundred liter American oak out of um, Yolumba, so they're Octavius wine, so it's like their super premium Shiraz product. Um, and we filled those just for a bit of a trial and, and the liquid that's coming out of those and across time has been incredible. And that really sort of paved the way, I guess, for us really committing fully to, to wine and next wine barrels and now doing more bigger format as well. So more bariques uh, and hogsheads, so 225 and 300 litres. And then we do stuff for fun as well. So we try and keep interesting wood coming in. So we don't do much bourbon, ex-bourbon wood, um, which is pretty uncommon for, you know, a big whiskey distillery or I guess a growing whiskey distillery but and that's i guess some listeners might not be aware that bourbon only gets used once and then they have to ship it on right yeah exactly so most of basically bourbon barrels um get shipped to you know to europe so scotland and, and ireland use heaps and heaps of them um then the beer industry in the states has really popped up and they're they're using heaps of bourbon barrels as well obviously and then you know, they, they go everywhere, but it's essentially, it's a really good relationship because bourbon have got this waste product in a bourbon barrel and whiskey industry wants wood and it, it works really well. But they're, um, they're really cool. They're really soft and caramelly and sweet and kind of let the spirit shine through a lot more than... Uh, yeah, bourbon barrels can only... I mean, American oak, you know, they chop the wood down, they turn it into a barrel, they toast it pretty heavily and then bourbon producers can only use that barrel once. So it can only get filled with New Make Spirit once. And then they take the product and, you know, or whatever's in that barrel and turn it into bourbon. And then they can't use that barrel again for bourbon production. So, mm. it, yeah, it goes off to, um, you know, I guess American craft distillers or it goes over to Scotland. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I was in Scotland, I um, I went to Leven, Leven, Leven bottling site. It was one of Diageo's big bottling sites. And um, on the hill, they've got like just these warehouses full of barrels. And I asked the guy, I'm like, so what do you do with your used barrels? And he kind of looked at me sideways and he's like, we just keep reusing them and then we shave them down and fire them and use them again. And so they don't really get rid of barrels. They just accumulate them. And then when I guess there's no wood left, they just disappear. Like, yeah, it was pretty interesting. I guess the makeup of a barrel is you have the top and the bottom, which is, I guess, the heads of the barrel. And then you have staves, which are, uh, steam bent oak pieces that are you know typically 50 mil thick and then or oh, geez bourbon barrels are usually thinner they're probably about 20 mil thick mm. um, and to I guess re-energize the wood they'll they'll take a, a layer or a mill off and then refire it and use it again so um, it's not as simple as that Cooperage is is an old profession and a, a pretty a dying one for sure um, so there's a bit of a dark art to it, but that's kind of how, how barrels work as they continuously get shaved down until the point where they're probably within a mill of their life. And then I don't know what happens to them then. Who knows? Are you guys doing that then? 
We're we're getting to the point now. Like, I mean, we've been, you know, filling barrels since 2010. And so as you you kind of keep filling barrels and emptying barrels, you, you do your first fills and then you do your second fills and then, you know, what do you do with the barrels after that? So we're kind of coming to that point of maturity or a point in our in our timeline where we've got to start thinking about what are we doing with these barrels once we reach that point. And, you know, obviously I guess um, we've talked about it a bit um, you know, the connection with beer in Melbourne is, is huge. So that's a really obvious avenue for us. And the, the appetite for barrels um, is, is huge. So that's an easy way to get rid of wood. But if we want to keep it in-house, you know, we, we build relationships with Cooperages and they can do that service. But it's it's really about what what's that barrel then going to contribute to the spirit and is that where you want the flavour profile to go and, you know, where's it going? So you got to – it's like you're throwing balls in the air and you want to make sure you're kind of hanging onto them and they're not – changing direction on you and stuff that's a learning process for us maybe we should make a brewery mm. sounds good jess <laughs> sounds great <laughs> so then once it's in the barrel how do you decide how much gets blended into a whiskey how much you keep in the barrel how much you're tasting of the barrels uh I, so this this is a bit of a process um and i guess um sam laid down the initial blueprint of of how we go about that, but we've been doing it for a while now and it actually gets easier the the more barrels you have to choose from. So uh, I'll talk you through how we, we go from barrels to glass. Um, and I guess, I guess Jared, our production distiller or whatever he does now, he he's, he's pretty well over that, but pretty much the process is, is that we, we look at what we did for our last, I guess, um, disgorging. Oh, fuck. Maybe we should start this process again. Mm. So we, we, we use a, we use a Solera process where we, it's not a typical Solera process in, you know, I guess how they do it in Spain, but is it Spain web? Yeah. Yeah. Um, where they'll, they'll have old barrels, new barrels and something in between and they'll draw down on all of them to make the finished product. We, we kind of have a big tank that we kind of keep one third full of, the previous product that we disgorged out of. Um, so then we'll look at what we used last time and we we'll use that as a blueprint and then we'll dig out barrels of a similar age, of a similar size um, and probably a similar spirit character and we'll we'll dig around through those and decide which, which barrels we're going to actually disgorge and then have a finished product in. So... Mm. It used to be a lot harder than what it is. Now we've kind of got a, a, I guess, a bigger bond store and a bigger draw stock to pull down on them. And we just, we, we follow a blueprint and adjust from there. Mm. A yeah. lot of sensory work. So you kind of pick out, say, 20 barrels or the 30 barrels and you kind of look through them, nose them quick, and you can kind of get, you get pretty good at assessing quickly um, the state of play of the barrels. And then you kind of put a blend together and have a look at it and then we do a lot of panel work like we try and work in a panel more than just one guy making making the decisions and then um do a lot of triangular tasting so taste it against the the previous batch and make sure it's it's in spec when we're happy with it we'll sign it off but it's um yeah like jay says we kind of as the as the bond store is kind of getting bigger and we've got more stock to pull from it's easier to to pull that together and and fill all the, the little holes that we need to in the um in the blend to make the complete product. I guess we're relatively um, unique in Australian whiskey in that we really do blends of barrels. Most Australian whiskies are doing um, 
doing uh, single barrel releases is a lot of that and kind of celebrating the individuality of barrels and, you know, every barrel is different, whereas we really take the, we want to deliver Starwood Solera being a relatively consistent product on the shelf every time. Um, and yeah, it's got its own challenges. Like it's fun. It's a fun process and it's really, uh, I think it's a good way to go about it, but it's yeah, very, very challenging as well. It just, it comes back in, to consistency. I mean, we used to try and taste every barrel once in its aging process, but now we're close to over 3000 odd barrels. That's a full-time job mm. to taste that much amount of whiskey. So we kind of look to what we've done in the past to determine what our blending process is going to be. Yeah. And that's the easiest method for us. And yeah, we do a lot of sensory work. There's no way to do it any easier than that, than the pellets. And that's something you can't, well, you can try and teach people how to do, but it just comes down to experience and that's drinking a lot of whiskey that's in our bond store. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people would think that's a great job. Is there a time when it gets tiring? Uh, drinking, I mean, we used to, like I mentioned just before, we used to try and taste every barrel out there and um, it would be, I guess, 10 or 20 barrel samples a day and we'd cut them down to, you know, 20 odd percent because we need to drive home. Um, and that gets really tiring. We used to do that for weeks at a time and uh, pallet fatigue is a real thing. Now we just kind of, we dig out barrels and we, 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 I guess we have a prototype of what a Starwood barrel, depending on what expression it is, needs to taste like. Mm. And if it tastes typical, um, we need to decide what we're going to do with that. If it's typical, then we move ahead with it. So it's not a bad job, but it's, you know, yeah, it's good. It's it's nice when it's informal and you can kind of just look at it and be a bit subjective and not have to really perform. But when you're kind of like deep in the hole of like doing triangular tasting and really you have to be on sometimes if you're not in the right headspace, it's pretty it's pretty hard. Yeah, if you got a cold, a block nose. If you had a coffee five minutes ago, yep, it's it makes your job a bit harder. But it's pretty good at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we are drinking yeah. whiskey. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> So the next few years, what's it going to look like for Starwood? Well, I think we didn't really touch on when we we changed or we moved our production to the site. We, we tripled our capacity as in mm. our output. So um, we're just, from a production point of view, we're just laying down barrels. We're, we're getting ready for what we're going to take the brand to in three years' time. So we're trying to meet demand. The problem is with whiskey production is you're trying to meet the demand for, you know, well, for us, typically three years ahead. So what's that going to be? How do you scope that out? Mm. How much whiskey do you need to make? It's not just like, you know, make as much as you can. It's kind of what we do. But the other end of the system is they're going to sell that much whiskey if we make it. Yeah. It's, um, you know, exports coming up. Like Australia is going really well and we're getting some pretty – good penetration in Australia and really, you know, people are really identifying with, with Starwood here. We're in the UK and we've got stock in France as well, but that market can be a bit challenging because they've got a lot of restrictions around what what they call whiskey. So sometimes that's a bit of a roadblock. And then the USA is a big one for us, you know, as a potential market. Um, so that'll be coming up, yeah, relatively soon. So, you know, two, three years time the amount of whiskey that we're packaging is going to just jump up dramatically um, because it's the stuff that we were making, you know, started making at the end of the old site and the start of this site. And um, 
yeah, more markets. So um, more whiskey floating around. Yeah. Anything that you guys want to tell the audience why you've got a captive audience other than come on down and, and drink some of the whiskeys? It's a, it's a great place to drink whiskey, but what else do you should people know about Starwood? I think, uh, uh, I don't know, I guess the thing that keeps me coming back and and working at Starwood is we're, we're trying to make a whiskey that is uniquely Australian. Um, so we're, we're trying to do something different than what you can typically find out of the market. So, yeah, definitely come on down um, and at least try the whiskey with an open mind and see what you think of it. Uh, you know, we make some of the best whiskey in the world, I I think. Mm, very, very good. Um, <laughs> well, the most u- uniquely Australian whiskey in the world. Um, so come down to, yeah, Port Melbourne, have a sticky beak. The Colonials. cars on the production floor will probably, probably enjoy a wave. Mm. Yeah. We like, we like waves. Okay. Um, so if I'm sitting there drinking a whiskey and – just give my hand up. Yeah, just mm. give them a thumbs up. Yeah, let, right. let them know they're doing the good fight. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, what do I do? They point to my glass and be like, yeah, yeah that's, oh, that's wow. a good one. Yeah, you might even get a pat on the back. There you um, go. <laughs> yeah, I guess in all seriousness, just just come down and try the whiskey. Hmm. Um, hopefully you'll like it. And if you don't, you know, at least try it in three months' time and see if you like it then. And if you don't, then <laughs> maybe it's onto something else. And as you said, Sam, Colonials across the road, and they're open. Are they open Friday, Saturdays? Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I yeah, think. Right. Yeah, right. Um, so that's a. It's literally a hundred meters. It's yeah. the old Matilda Bay site. So what yeah. are like a combination of a couple of beers, a couple of whiskeys? That's mm. so like that's what I want out of life, pretty mm. much. Mm. Hopefully, the Melbourne Moonshine guys can get their get their stuff together, and we can we can do a little triangle. Well, they're building their bar at the moment, I think. I couldn't that, tell you. I because I met one of them the other week, and I think we're going to do a show with him soon. Cool. So. Good. Yeah, you guys need to do more whiskey stuff. This is good. Mm, yeah, yeah. Stuff. yeah. Well, it's something that I don't think we know much about. Well, come back and visit us if you want to learn more. Hopefully we can shine a light on any dark corners of yeah. the whiskey game. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for your time, guys. Uh, I really appreciate you guys taking the time and uh, sharing the story with us. And, uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing more Starwood in the future. No, thanks, guys. It's great. <laughs>